From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specialising in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. From the Saddle. My guest this afternoon is Linda McCallum. Linda is from Scone in New South Wales and is currently the Vice President of the National Cutting Horse Association. Afternoon, Linda. How are you? Hi, Kay. I'm very well, thank you. I'm sure it was a little fresh in Scone this morning. It certainly has been. We've had some good frost for the last few weeks and um, usually clears to a beautiful day, though. And we've had some nice rain as well, so... It's a beautiful season, the rivers are running, and I don't mind a nice sunny day after a frost at all. Yeah, no, um, things have turned around, which is always a nice start for the year. Let us start at the beginning, Linda. Where did you grow up? Okay, I grew up in the Upper Hunter Valley, a little district called Tymore, which is nestled in the Great Dividing Range, just east of Morondi. And I grew up on a property there. We had our own property and my father also managed the property next door. So uh, we had the Great Dividing Range as our playground and I um, would often go with Dad. He, he would spend long days out mustering. It was a big sheep place at that stage. And, yeah, we'd often muster and uh, went to Pony Club and yeah, went. we had our local little camp draft and just lived a fantastic childhood, I guess, in the saddle. Yeah, beautiful spot. I have uh, been to the King of Ranges at Marirondi, and I must say it is very nice. It is. It is. It's cool, you know, cool winters, but it's a lovely spot to live. So clearly your dad was an accomplished horseman. Uh, did you grow up enjoying riding or was it something that just happened and was part of everyday life and part of, part of jobs that needed to, ha- to do and when the mustering was on, you were expected to be involved or did you pester your father from when you were very little to go riding? Well, I was the youngest of five children, Kay. I came along um, quite a bit after the others, so I was a nice surprise for mum and dad. <laughs> and um, They basically thought they'd almost raise their family. So my, I had two older brothers and two older sisters. They were all at Pony Club. And so they put me on the lead line. I, I've got photos of myself with a little stick horse tied up to the old Bedford truck. <laughs> You know, when I was when I could walk <laughs> beside my my brothers and sisters um, pony club horses, and um, so as soon as I could sit on a on a pony, they put me in the lead classes at lunchtime at the local pony clubs. So I did I did grow up around horses. Dad was a, a, a stock horse man. He enjoyed his stock horses, and we enjoyed the lifestyle. I loved going with Dad. I loved going with him um, on those days mustering and you know it, it, they were big days and I look back now and I think it was such a special time I guess on the back of a horse but also to spend with my dad and I can remember from the moment I could saddle a horse myself and lift a saddle onto <laughs> a horse myself I would spend hours on the flat at home just trying to I didn't know what I was doing, but trying to teach my horse to hack around pretty so I could <laughs> do okay in the riding classes, you know, things like that. So, yeah, always wanted to train horses and to, to learn more about what I was trying to do. Yeah. Our research uh, indicates that you uh, did a lot of show riding and went certainly to royal shows. So I'm guessing from there you would have gone into Sydney. Um, that would have been no mean feat. That is certainly... In regards to being a competitor in Sydney, that's not for the faint-hearted. Did you enjoy that? 
Yeah, I did. So my first Royal Show experience, I made our zone team of four riders. So there was four of us. We would practice on weekends and we went to um, Sydney Royal for the Pony Club team of four. So my sister is Sue Duggan and she, she can't draft. But she did the same when she was going through the ranks as well. So it was fantastic. But from there, I loved the riding classes. I loved hacking. So I had some really nice show horses throughout the time. And I would, we, mum would take me to Canberra Royal and Brisbane Royal and Sydney Royal. And uh, we'd do all the local ag shows as well. So I actually really loved my time. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed hacking and show riding. So... Oh, those horses, you know, they're hard to come by. A good, a good hack horse and a good, particularly for for children and and younger riders. Were they horses that your father had bred, or did you, you know, go on a search and destroy mission to find a suitably trained and and horse that's ready to go into that discipline without too much trouble? Well, we we didn't wasn't available to us to go and purchase a horse of that quality. We didn't grow up with. Uh, you know, a lot of money. So that wasn't an option. I used to remember when the horse fields came out and it was the size, half the size it is now. <laughs> yeah, it was a tiny, like a brochure. And I used to buy that and I used to pour over the beautiful, you know, hacks and I think, you know, I'd love that horse and look at the price tag and though I, I had no hope that that was just a little girl dreaming. But um, we were lucky enough. Originally, there were some horses that we come by that oh, my dad would get through friends or acquire through relatives that I, one was quite an accomplished show horse and then the others that I showed throughout my time were horses that dad kind of saw a good looking horse and um, he would ask a family friend if, if they would let me show it for a while and I'd take it and try and train it and take it to the royal shows and grow a mane and learn to plait <laughs> and and yeah, that's how we went about it. So I kind of, I wasn't handed, you know, that A grade horse yep. and um, mostly where I was mostly competitive, you know, I was competitive enough that I would be accepted and get the performances to go to the royal shows as a mm-hmm. hack. Um, but I really went for my riding classes more so than the hacks with the horses I had. And, um, yeah, I just loved being a part of it. I guess uh, that was a good grounding to uh, lead you into training horses for the rest of your life. Once you start with a pony hack like that, you can nearly train anything to do anything. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I do agree. And um, I went from there into showing stock horses and I really enjoyed that as well. And we did a few drafts, you know, as we were growing up and we used to train them all. I never had a lot of grounding and never used to do a lot of clinics or tuition. I had a local uh, friend of ours who used to come and give me lessons. She was fantastic for riding, riding lessons. But otherwise, it was very much trial and error. And it was good. It was a very good grounding, yeah. So... You went camp drafting, you went show riding, um, you went showing stock horses. How did you end up in the cutting world? I'm from the camp draft background and I just find the cutting world a completely, completely different. It's nearly like red apples and green apples is as close as I can get it in my mind. What was it that attracted you to the cutting horses? Yeah, it is. I agree. It was, it's totally different and it was never something that we ever even attended at, through my childhood as far as the cutting futurity. Um, it was never any something that I knew anything about. So I went to university 
in Armadale and I became very good friends with Jane Munro and Jane is now married to Tom Williamson mm-hmm. and Jane loved the cutting. She loved it. So during our university years, we would often travel during the NCHA Futurity from Armadale to Tamworth of a night time for the nightlife. It was when the futurity was at the old shed <laughs> and um, we would go down there and I was, what are we, what's this cutting, you know, what's this cutting all about? And I was, have to be honest, I was mostly there for the party at that stage. I wasn't really interested in the horses at all. Good girl. And um, we used to go down there. Yeah, we had a heck of a time. It was fantastic. <laughs> but I got to meet, meet a few people. And then Jane um, married Tom and it was um, when Tom had one more Playboy um, in his maturity year, he asked if I would help lope him. So I did help lope him. And then one day after that, he let me have a ride on him on the mechanical cow. And um, it was just the most amazing feeling. And like a lot of people actually describe how they first get into cutting or how they get hooked, that was all it takes. It's just that <laughs> feeling of the horse taking over on a cow. You know, it's just the most surreal feeling. So, um, yeah, I had a ride on one more play by a mechanical cow and I thought I would love to do this. So Tom encouraged me at that stage. We started to have our children. They were babies. I had a couple of young horses. I had an Acres Destiny gelding and a one more playboy filly and they were two-year-olds and Tom said, why don't you try and train those for the snap bit maturity? So um, that's what I did and I used to get up very early in the morning before my husband Jim went to work so that he could just be in the house with the baby and it used to give me just an hour to myself. I'd go, we had this little makeshift, you know, arena and we had a flag set up one end and I'd just go and work the flag and try and get these horses broken. That's, that's how it started. I just was trial and error and, yeah, took those two horses to the snaffle bit for charity and I've trained aged event horses ever since, basically. So which was the favourite out of those two? Uh, well, uh, the gelding we still have and um, I actually sold him and we he, we purchased him back in the meantime. He was a favourite, <laughs> but he's just your real Acres Destiny, so quiet, so trainable. He would do anything and he's now our turn back horse. He will be forever at our house. The filly, however, had a little more cow and I actually ended up fifth that year on her. Mm. And um, she was then sold and um, she went up drafting in Queensland. I, I put her through the landmark sale and um, she was really fairly, really cowy. And she was a handful, but she taught me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so was, was that 2009 you started out with that, with Tom, or is that when you really sort of hit your own straps in 2009? 2009 was the year that I um, competed in the staff bit for charity on those two horses. So I guess it was a couple of years prior to that that I started on this training journey um, and trying to train them. We have a local uh, club here in the Hunter Valley called the Hunter Valley Cutting Horse Club and they were very active with training days at that stage. So I used to, I I joined that and I'd go along and and participate in their training days at Bell Trees in the Upper Hunter and um, you got to know a few people and, and once you get to know a few people, you know, it's it was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. But, and we were also, around that time, we were in the syndicate that owned one stylish Pepto. Oh, wow. 
So, um, yeah, in the original syndicate, we bought into that and um, we owned, um, were a part of that syndicate during his maturity in Derby. He won the Derby and then we actually sold out of him. And the reason we sold out of him, this was before he'd gone drafting, he was still in the cutting pen. But the reason we sold out of him was we decided that we wanted to utilise that money to buy ourselves a trained horse so that I could, I could compete. And he kind of helped us get that start as well. So did you find the perfect trained horse that went on to become, you know, the horse that you you really thought was what made your cutting career or did that take a few buy and sells to find that right horse? Look, I really think for me, people say how's the best way to get into cutting and um, some people believe it's buy that trained horse so you know what you're trying to feel and and you learn along with that horse. I did it the other way. I trained my own snaffle bit for charity horses before I really knew what I was trying to feel and the basic concepts. However, the hands-down horse I purchased, he was very forgiving. He was a great rookie horse. So he was a great horse for me to have first. And from him, we purchased another really good hands-down gelding that Jim and I both had a lot of fun on. He was a Pepto gelding. And they really probably give you that leg up into what you're trying to achieve and how it should feel. You know, it was great to train my own, and I think in hindsight it's helped me now down the path. But um, to, to really get that feel, I think if I could do it again, to buy that hands-down horse and start through the weekend shows would probably be the way that I'd go about it. Yep. So now do you train horses for a living? Do you do it just for fun or do you campaign other people's horses? What does a day in the cutting life of Linda McCallum look like now? So I am classed as a non-professional rider in the NCHA. So as a non-professional rider, I am not able to take remuneration for training cutting horses or giving lessons for other people. I can only train and ride my own cutting horses. I could adjust thoroughbred or I could take horses for the landmark sale or I could ride camp draft horses for outside clients, but I can't ride a cutting horse or cross the timeline on a cutting horse for remuneration. Mm-hmm. So we only ride our own. We don't take outside horses at all. And our business model that we have found works now is we try and train three three-year-olds each year for the futurity. And out of that, we usually sell one, two, sometimes all of them, either back into the cutting pen or I usually try and set a couple of horses for the Nutrient Classic sale each year. So we try and train three each year. So currently at the moment I have three this year's maturity, I have three three-year-olds and I have three breakers. Sorry, three two-year-olds for next year and three breakers for the year after. So that's what we find works for us. It's a good mix. My family can compete on my horses. We have a couple of older mares that my daughter Livy and Jim ride and compete on, but um, I just enjoy the training. I'm also a teacher by trade, so I casual teach at the moment. I'm a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. So if, if school re- usually gives me, they'll ring and say, can you work yeah, two days next week? So I know what days I'm working. Jim and I just get up really early. We ride our horses, train them, and um, then we go about our day which may include me going to school it may include Jim he's a stock and station agent so he may have to go to the sale he may do some work on our farm here in the upper hunter 
Well, we also have a property on King Island, so where we run beef cattle. So Jim, he, you know, he may go away for a week at a time down there to to do what he needs to do, and I just can keep the horses worked at home, whether it's on the flag or the kids help me, or I've got some friends that come and help me as well. So we're very lucky. I think we live the good life. Yes. So just on that, explain to the listener the difference between being a non-pro rider and a pro rider. Yeah, so a professional rider is anybody who takes remuneration for training, competing or giving lessons on cutting horses to outside clients. That's what we class as a professional rider. Now, they can compete only in open events. They are not able to compete in a non-professional event. Whereas a non-professional is somebody who doesn't take remuneration for training cutting horses for outside clients or giving a lesson on a cutting horse. Yep. However, so someone like me, I train my own horses, but I often compete against um, a lot of my competitors may have their horses in training with one of the trainers and often they have other outside interests. So they'll have other business interests that, you know, they might they might not even ride on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of the non-pros do ride on a day-to-day basis, but some don't as well. So that's the difference. I, as a non-pro, can ride in an open event as well, however. So it can work that way. I can ride up, but a professional trainer is not allowed to compete in a non-professional event. Okay. So a professional, is that by choice? So until this time, I could wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to hand in my non-pro card because you have to be granted a non-pro card based on your circumstances, which means you don't take outside horses for cutting purposes. So I, tomorrow morning, I wake up and say, I'm going to hand in my non-pro card and I'm going to turn professional and take outside horses. Um, I am able to do that. However, just recently, the NCHA has started an accreditation process for our trainers. And in the accreditation process of our trainers, there's a minimum standard that our trainers have to meet before they are able to be an accredited trainer. And this is a process that we have been um, going through. It's the date set down for it to become enforced is our national finals next year. And as a part of that, a pro trainer has to either have spent three years as an apprentice, so to speak, under a more senior trainer, or they have to have entered the non-pro Hall of Fame. So they have to have won a minimum of $75,000 in lifetime earnings. And they have to have ticked several other boxes as well. So they must have a first aid certificate. They must have a working with children check. And they must have completed the Horse Safety Australia course. So it's something that the pro trainers have brought in. It's accreditation process just to, um, I guess, enable our clients of our NCHA industry the comfort in knowing that our pro trainers are a very professional body. Now, when it comes to competing at weekends, there are different levels of competition. Some are based on the earnings of the rider. So, and this is in the non-professional ranks. So a rookie cannot have earned up to $3,000 in lifetime earnings. Then there's an event for people who haven't won 15000 Then there's an event, there's a novice non-pro event, which is based on the horses. Then um, there's an open non-pro, which is for you can have won as much as you like. And in the pro ranks, basically their 
um, events that they can compete on at weekend shows. I'm not talking about aged events, but at weekend shows, yep. the, what they can compete on is based on the horse's earnings. So there are different classes based on how much the horse has earned. So similar to a maiden novice open set up like the camp draft. Yep. But, um, and the beauty of being a non-professional is I can ride up into the professional ranks, but they mm. can't ride down. Yep. So I guess we're probably, you know, it's not so much the Linda McCallum story, but I know that in the equine industry, it's always of interest. In your current process that you're going through to have accredited trainers, how are you going to, or is there already somewhere in the rules of cutting that says that Todd Graham, Phil Conigan, and I can't rattle off any others quickly, they're the top, you know, you've got to have had three years under them before you can then become a pro pro trainer. How is that going to work for you? Yeah, there's already set standards. Okay. So they've they've already a list of um, trainers who have already started this accreditation process. Okay. And there's quite a list of trainers who have already done that and who will be automatically accredited by the time uh, March or our national finals next year roll around. Um, Phil Conigan, he's a non-pro, so he doesn't fit into that category. But your other professional trainers, uh, most of whom you would have heard of, they're all already been through this whole process. And um, they will be automatically accredited. However, if somebody, um, why this process has been brought in, I guess, is if somebody tomorrow decides that they want to become a professional cutting horse trainer, if I am a paying client with a cutting horse and Joe blogs down the road, hangs up a sign on his front gate that says professional cutting horse trainer, and he has only just started training he hasn't really competed, you know, he hasn't spent his time under another trainer and, and or he hasn't won the amount of money as a non-pro to class him, you know, as, as an established cutting horse trainer, then anybody who is looking to invest in a horse or in training of a horse can do so knowing that the assurity that that person has their set credentials, they can trust that their money in their investment is being well spent. That's the goal. It's yeah, to set a minimum standard so people have had that experience when training horses. If I wanted to go professional tomorrow, I could because I have won $75,000 and I have entered the non-pro hall of fame. Yep. So it's only if a non-pro wants to turn in their card and become a pro, they can do so once they've won $75,000 and entered the non-pro hall of fame or they've spent three years, if, if a young guy leaves school and wants to become a cutting horse trainer. He can go and spend three years under Jason Leach or three years under Phil Dawson or three years under Todd Graham or three years under all those great guys we have yep. and, and fill that process that way. Yeah. Do you think you'll have a take-up of, of many people turning in their non-pro cards because of, of the accreditation or do you think people who ride as a non-pro person – like yourself, you do it because you love it. And I mean, I know the people who are pros love it too, but you love your horses and you love the satisfaction of training your horse and competing on your horse. Or do you think there'll be a few people who go, there's some bucks to be made here. I'll turn this card in now and become a a professional cutting horse trainer. Is that the aim of what you're trying to do? Increase the number of professional cutting horse trainers? Or is it just a way that the committee or the board think that they can get some sort of level of competencies within the industry? Yes, yeah, first, um, 
I believe it's a way of setting a minimum standard so that people know that they can invest with confidence in the industry. And as far as a lot of the non-pros are concerned, I think those who are established non-pros and they're doing it for a long time, they're a non-pro often because they have other business interests and their horses. Like for me, it's a hobby. I enjoy it. But now it also uh, works in our business model because I do sell those horses on as well. So it just, you know, it subsidizes what we do with our cattle and, and yep. my teaching income. So that that's the business model that works for us. And, and I think it's, you know, it's a very personal choice as to whether a lot of our non-pros would hand in their cards and go pro. My big picture that I would love, and I guess because I'm a teacher and I come from that background, I would love there to be some type of formal recognised traineeship, apprenticeship, that type of thing in horse training that yep. could get our guys a, a formal qualification. Because I feel like, you know, to get that, we know in today's employment world, to get that qualification is so important. And that is something that I would love and I've looked into and I need to work on more. Is I would love to build some sort of formal qualification that comes about that would enable people to go into, I guess, performance horse training. I know you can get something in the racehorse world, but to go yeah. into performance horse training and end up with a qualification on the other side. And, and this is just me, you know, thinking out loud here, theoretically. I would love to, you know, have maybe have some sort of animal husbandry units in, in the qualification through TAFE, some type of business management units through TAFE, you know, managing your business, working out your, your back. Yeah. There's so much to running a business that here in Australia, our pro trainers have to manage themselves. You know, I feel like in the States, there's always people that can help take care of all the outside stuff. But here, you know, the guys, they've got to be able to do their own accounting. They've got to be able to do their own best. <laughs> you know, then there's public relations and then there's, you know, marketing. If It would be great to see something like that. I would love that, but um, that's hopefully down the track and something we'd love to work on. Sounds like something that Linda McCallum could really get her teeth into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I hope so. It's, um, often though Linda McCallum can bite off more than she can chew, but she'll try and chew like hell and get through it. <laughs> um, so in your, in your line-up of horses that you currently got, um, you know, have you got any that you think these ones are particularly special and uh, they will bring me home uh, the ribbon that I'm chasing or... Have you had any of those in the past and thought this horse is so good, but I probably need to sell it on and and hold my course, I guess, of training these horses to be sold, not to have a paddock full of horses that I love. Yeah, it's always it's always a difficult decision, but it's something that uh, it works for our business model. Is we you know what we train, we decide to sell. Mostly we we sell them. I don't have any other aged event horses at the moment. I have no Derby horses which are four-year-olds and no classic horses five and sixes the horse that probably um i guess changed things for me was metallic storm and i trained him well bought him out of landmark in 2017 and i trained him right through to the futurity in 2018 and that was the first time i'd ever entered the open futurity and he was always a beautiful horse to train 
he just knew his job and, and he brought me home reserve champion in the open futurity. I won the amateur futurity and I was third in the non-pro futurity. So he, um, he really changed things for us, I guess, and he's probably the horse that has been pivotal in what we are doing. And, and it was him who got me into the Dompro Hall of Fame. And, um, yeah, he earned us quite a sizable check that year. So I guess you only need that little bit of success to, to keep you hungry for the next one. And then I sold him this year at Landmark, which was a, it was a difficult sale, but it was the right sale. Um, because his future is, is in the camp draft pen and um, he's gone to a great home. Oh, wow. Um, I was just going to say, mm. is, is he still your favourite? <laughs> You'll watch from afar. Um, yeah, look, he, he will always be. He will. He will always um, hold a special place for us. And, um, yeah, he, he, changed, he changed our lives. He came at just the right time too. I was diagnosed with MS just two weeks before that futurity in 2018. I'd been out of hospital, sorry, for two weeks before the futurity. So I was diagnosed at the start of May and um, I'd spent two weeks in hospital. I was very unwell and he, I just got on and rode and he just looked after me. It was like a dream actually when you look back on it. Yeah. And he really was very pivotal and looked after me. And um, so, yeah, he was he's a big part of, I guess, my story and my journey. And, um, yeah, I'll ever, we'll be grateful for him. So you've touched on the MS. I guess, you know, those, those sorts of diagnoses are what none of us expect or want to hear. You know, horse riding is regarded as a great form of exercise for lots of different ailments and illnesses and conditions. Um, do you still ride um, and do you think it, it helps you keep your symptoms at bay and in check? Yeah, we still compete and I still train my horses every day. So I'm two years into my diagnosis and I've learned a lot in those two years and I'm sure there'll be a lot more that I'll have to learn as well. My first symptoms were I... Um, I was at a cutting show and I had a very funny taste in my mouth and a funny feeling at the back of my throat. And I thought that I had eaten something and I was having a reaction. So, and I felt terrible, had headaches and I just felt terrible. But, you know, I just, I competed. I did really well there. It was, um, I had another horse. I won the Open Derby. It was at Armadale. But I would, I would just ride and then I went to bed really early and my husband's like, what's wrong? I said, oh, I don't know, I just feel terrible. I've got this funny feeling in my throat. Well, the next week I was getting ready to go to another event and I started to get tingling around my mouth and I ended up at my local hospital one night. I thought I was having a stroke and um, they just sent me home, said I had um, some sort of virus. So I think for a lot of people, that's how diagnosis comes about. You know your body, you know it very well. I knew there was something off and um, I just didn't give up. I kept going back to my doctor and I kept saying I'm not right and they kept giving me antivirals and different medication until one day I went and sat at our local doctor's surgery. I said, I'm not leaving here until I get some sort of satisfaction. And um, they sent me home with different medication. I was that angry and when I got home, I collapsed. So um, I think the emotion of being there all day had really, and every, I was so sick, so I collapsed and ended up in John Hunter Hospital in, in Newcastle. So in hindsight, that was over the course of about eight weeks and that is quite from the first symptom. And that symptom for me with MS, it depends where your lesions are formed in your brain. 
So, and that depends on what type of symptoms you have. So that lesion for me was right near my trigeminal nerve, which controls your mouth and and um, your tongue and the inside of your face. So that's how that symptom for me come up. A lot of people talk about you know numbness in hands or so. I um I ended up yeah in John Hunter and got some satisfaction. I still compete. I have learned a lot. I am very careful with my diet. Um, I'm on a very um, particular diet. I really look after myself as far as my diet, exercise and sleep is concerned. And of course, you fall off the rails from time to time, but it does have um, consequences for me when I do. And I do end up with symptoms from time to time as well. So the heat really knocks me around. Last year, I was at an event at um, Victoria at the Futurity and on finals day, a metallic storm, I woke up and I knew I wasn't okay. And I couldn't feel my legs. So on that day, I had great friends that just helped me and got my horse ready for me and um, worked my horse and legged me on and I held on and I, he looked after me. We ended up fifth. I didn't ride like I wanted, but we still we still did okay. And um, I've just had to get my head around the fact that I will have bad days. And on yeah. those days, I need to just put that day aside and know tomorrow is a new day. And mm. often if I do that and get to bed early, I'm okay. But I'm not on any medication. I have been able to get this diagnosis very early in what's going on with me and it hasn't changed. My scans have not changed in the two years since I was originally diagnosed. So, so far, so good. And um, I just hope that, you know, I can, I can stay on this path. That's right. And, you know, a healthy lifestyle and exercise, um, I'm sure, are part of what keep you um, on the road, you know, like you say, and horses play a huge part in that. And you often have to wonder whether the horses pick up on it, you know, much earlier than you do, that things are not quite the way they should be with this person on my back today. And I'll just um, look after them the best I can. I genuinely believe that. I have a father who has a disability and he was, we grew up in the bush and his horses would do things for him that they didn't do for anyone else. <laughs> and I firmly believe that that was the reason why um, they knew that he was different to the rest of us. Yeah, I agree. I think you do get that bond. And I think for my horses, some days, some days just getting in the pen is the accomplishment for the day. Yep. So if I got this attitude, you know, if, if the job's half done, it's better than not doing it at all. So if I just get in there and I can just give them, you know, a quick lick and I'm so lucky that my husband, Jim, and my family would help me. If we get in there and we can give them a quick work and then we can put them up, you know, and often sometimes I'll have to just go and go to bed after that's done. But it's fun, you know, and that's mm. an achievement and we're lucky to be able to do that. So I do agree. I think they can feel and they can sense and, yeah, so often they do look after you. Yeah. Linda, you're currently the vice president of the NCHA. Have you got big plans? Do you want to take the V away from that or are you happy sitting where you are within the board of the NCHA? Uh, look, I am very happy, Kay. I, I have been on the board, this is the last six months of my three-year term. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I enjoy my role on the board very much. I enjoy vice president and I enjoy working collaboratively and as a team and um, trying to, you know, get things done and and help our industry grow. And I'm I'm happy as vice president right now. 
we work well as a board and we work well as a team and we work well as an executive with the president, Peter Schumach. So I'm very content and I enjoy my role. That's great. Well, thank you, Linda. We've been talking to Linda McCallum, who is currently the Vice President of the National Cutting Horse Association of Australia. Linda's based in Scone. We wish you many more happy and successful events and maybe another metallic storm, Linda. Thanks for the chat. Thank you, Kay. And um, I look forward to getting back in the pan, as I'm sure everyone does look forward to getting back out in the arena this year. It's been a different year for us all. Certainly has been. Take care and we'll talk soon. Will do. Thank you for having me on the show. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specialising in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram.